Kat. And I'm Kurt, and you're listening to Kat and Kurt's TV Review. Welcome to episode 248, Athletes Can Have Brains. This week, we're discussing episode 6 of Class, Detained, and season 5, episode 6 of Angel, The Cautionary Tale of Numero Cinco. As always, we suggest you watch the episodes before you listen to the podcast. Also, if you haven't done so already, you may want to listen to our first podcast to get an idea of our methodology. All right. So, uh, detained. Uh, question. Uh-huh. I hadn't actually considered this until just now. Uh-oh. Which always... It's always uh, a great way to start. Yeah. Uh, cabin scenario? Cabin scenario? Hmm. I, I kind of think not. Mm-hmm. So they're definitely cut off. Sure. And there's definitely, like, I mean, I, I feel like there's some similar effects. Like, because I, you know, my whole thing is that, like, I talk about there's a sort of focusing effect mm-hmm. of the situation and the being cut off and the, you know, sort of being threatened by this creature. Yeah. But I, but it's like, they're not like traveling out to the wilderness, right? Like they're just kind of like immediately sent or like imprisoned or something. Like, I guess I'm not, I'm not sure that I've defined, there's sort of a willingness to go to a remote location Mm. and be cut off initially that I think happens in cabin scenarios that doesn't happen here. So does the the way you get there matter? Um, yeah. Like, do you is does it necessitate willingness, like you said, or even just the the physical travel, like through the woods or the desert or whatever the wilderness is to get to the cabin? Um, like, does it not count if they're just sort of suddenly thrust into it with no warning? Right. Or, or like, is there a difference between cabin scenario and imprisonment? Sure. Right. Yeah. Like, because, like, you think about something like some sort of, like, hostage situation or something. Mm -hmm. Like, would that be considered a cabin scenario? I Mm -hmm. don't think so. No. Like, I don't think it has the same... No. There seems like a fundamental difference between, like, being sort of imprisoned and trapped in a place versus like going willingly to a place and finding yourself cut off. Yeah. From yeah. Help. Yeah. And, um, uh, I think I remember talking about, they're not exact matches, but there's some overlap with what in Dr. Who they call the base under siege, you know, of being a, a sure. related, it's sort of a cousin of the cabin scenario. And, um, and this yep. is one, again, where I feel like, okay, I don't know that it counts if they're not really under siege. Like, the, the threat is in the room with them. Um, so, you know, it both in the form of, of the prisoner who they find is sort of, you know, his consciousness is sort of a presence. But also, like, it's really kind of that whole thing of it's themselves. Like, it's their own fears and insecurities amplified by... Sure. By him and by the scenario and by the fact that they are sort of cut off and imprisoned. So they're not, 
under siege from outside forces. It's more the internal that they're sort of stuck with with themselves. And that puts it in a slightly different category, I think. Which is, I mean, that's kind of a heaven sent thing, right? Like sure, yeah. Being trapped within a thing, but not like, it's not really someone trapping. I mean, someone's trapping you, but like... right the thing that's keeping you there is kind of your own problems that you need to work through. Right. And if it's like, if, if you're, uh, if it's a traditional base under siege, um, it's more like you have to barricade the place against what's right. trying to invade it. Whereas like in these sort of more prison scenarios, it's how are we going to escape it? And the thing that is, preventing us from escaping aren't like monsters lurking in the woods outside. It's ourselves or some other thing that's in, in the room with us. And that's, what's preventing us from right. leaving this. You, you're your own captor. You're or right, right. Right. Whichever, whichever way you right. look at it. Both. Both. Right. Yeah, yeah. 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 So it's, yeah. So yeah, I think adjacent to those genres, but not a, quite a perfect match for either of them, really. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But good thought. So after our unplanned opening, hi. Hello. Let's talk about detained. Yeah. Um. All right, detention. Everyone's had it at some point in their life. Well, maybe not. I don't know. Maybe you've never had it. I've never had detention. So, well, you know, I, I wouldn't know. I have, and I'll give you one guess as to what got me there. <laughs> um, <laughs> probably wasn't sarcasm arguing with my teacher. No, of course not. Like no. That. Uh, yeah. Um, so they all get detention. I would be, get... I would be Charlie. Like, is this what detention's like? Like... Do you normally sure. get cast into the I, the cold vacuity of space? I I mean honestly, like for me, it was just like okay, like sit there and be quiet and read. Like right. so, it wasn't it wasn't that it's not bad, that terrible. To be yeah, honest. yeah. Like I do, I would just be going. I mean, and and it's at like, that point oh, in high school, quiet, I lived two blocks away. Quiet so it was book like, time. Oh, okay. Yeah, at, you know. at this point, it's literally what I would be doing at home anyway. Right. It's just now right. I'm sit, I'm sitting at, I mean, in my, okay, I'm in an uncomfortable school chair reading, but like, yeah, otherwise, like, yeah, whatever. Um. So yeah, I mean, not that I wanted. I mean, I, I, yes, there's the parental factor, of course, as well, but. Sure. Um, yeah. I don't even know if my parents ever even knew because, like, it wasn't like bad enough that you had to like tell them. It mm -hmm. was just you got like held after school. So they all get detention. Mm -hmm. um, obviously contrived by Quill to, you know, have detention together because there's all of them and nobody else, mm -hmm. right? Like it's them and only them mm -hmm. uh, who are detained. Um, and I mean, we we know why. I, I mean, we find out why at the end, um, and we'll talk about Quill and her situation when we get there. But uh, yeah, uh, very obviously, like this is like you know her version of like caging the dog when you need to go mm -hmm. to an appointment, right? Like 
putting the dog in a cage so it doesn't hurt itself or others and mm -hmm. or you know wreck the property and then you know you can go off and do what you need to get done um yeah and i guess we can talk more when we find out where exactly she goes and what happens to her like um is it 50 50 what's the ratio of like needing to do this to get them out of the way or or is it because she's compelled because of the you know the promise she has to protect mm. charlie and like is this a is this a nominal way of following the letter of the law or is this um a way of making sure that they don't find out or come sort of interfering or snooping with whatever it is that she's doing. Yeah. I mean, she says that I know. Well, do we want to just talk about Quill now or not? Cause she, well, we could just she says, talk about Quill she says now. basically that, right? Like Charlie says, you're sworn to protect me. And she says, that's why I'm locking you in. <laughs> right. Like it's so you won't come to any harm. Um, Obviously, that ends up not being entirely true because he does come to harm. She mm -hmm. has to save him from the harm that he comes to mm -hmm. uh, at the end. But, um, you know, there's a certain logic to that, I suppose, of like, they actually do say that that's one of the reasons why you should lock dogs in a cage or a kennel or something when you leave. Like, don't, I mean, I know a lot of people let them roam around their house, but at least when they're like puppies and stuff, mm -hmm. you know. There's lots of things they can get into and chew and potentially swallow that could hurt them. And mm -hmm. so there's, like, actually reasons why you would want to constrain, you know, a dog or something like that. Um, not that I'm necessarily comparing the characters here to dogs, but, like, sure. there, there's at least, you can understand that there's a logic, at least in Quill's brain, yeah. to, I'm locking you in. So that nothing, so you can't get into any trouble and nothing can get you. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, like, the question then becomes, like, does that actually work? And what happened, like... Right, and is she, um, I mean, we, we find out at the end, it seems maybe she's out from under this contract anyway. So it's all kind of moot, but, like, if things had happened to Charlie while she was away... Um, you know, apparently she's capable of letting that happen. You know, that he can get hurt from her absence or from neglect. Yeah. And that seems to, like, what would have been the direct consequence of that to her? We're not, you know. Yeah. Uh, we don't quite know, obviously, because A, she saves him, and B, she may not even have to save him anyway. So right. We, right. maybe we won't ever find out, but that's sort well, of... And and so that brings us, I guess, to the situation, which is where we were planning to start. Because I guess the question there is, if he's outside of time and space, does do those rules still apply? Right. And it, seem, it seems to be, he seems to think, at least at one point, oh, well, I guess we're working backwards now, because like, now we're talking about Charlie. But Charlie seems to think at one point, at least, that his not being on Earth, and even in like the time-space continuum, like gives her sort of free reign right because i forget exactly how he puts it um 
Right. Here he he worries about that at least. Yeah, like the fact that like Quill's sort of able to run rampant on a planet where he's not around to have to be saved mm-hmm. or, you know, watch over her or whatever. I don't know if that's I'm not I wasn't entirely clear if that's because they are in a sort of non time, non linear space, you know place or if that was like if he dies then that would be the situation Hmm. like like does his dying cause her death too or does his dying free her that's why i'm saying i that's my question is because we're sort of prevented from seeing that at the end like if he had died and her still sort of under the contract you know that Hmm. sort of you know binds her to him like what would have been the the direct consequence to her i don't know that we really know um yeah like does she because it seems like she's not allowed to let him so if she fails there would be some sort of it's not like oh i'm free that well that was an easy you know otherwise she would just let him die and that would be the end of it like It seems like something would happen to her if she failed. Um, But I think Charlie's Charlie's question in this episode is more what you said at the beginning of is, is the contract sort of void if he's taken out of time and space? Like, do the rules not apply? Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, and again, I don't think we really get solid answers to either of those questions, really. Yeah. But no, I... but it, it, you know, very much points out kind of the things that Tanya at least has been saying to Charlie of like, you know, why should she want to save you other than to help herself? You know, like other than to avoid negative consequences for herself, if it's something she has to do out of an obligation and she kind of hates you um, and, you know, is enslaved to, you know, do your bidding, what exactly, again, is the motivation to be swooping in to the rescue? Um, And, I mean, he very much acts every time she brings this up as though, it doesn't matter if she likes it or not. This is the way things are. And obviously she has to do it because that's the rules and because I said so and all these things and the doctor said so and everything. Um, but like, I think that he's less certain of the ironclad logic of that when he's actually taken out and put somewhere else. Um, mm-hmm. You know, suddenly it's like, oh yeah, if, if you are oppressing people, you know, you can act like they're willing servants, but do you really believe that? Um, anyway, it kind of puts his his confidence to the test a bit, and I think on much shakier ground. Um, sure. Like, he, he sounds much less certain about that than he used to. Um
like all the things he's saying about what if she doesn't rescue me? What if she doesn't have to rescue me? Those are the things that Tanya's kind of been trying to point out for the last few episodes. Like, yeah, maybe she doesn't want to do these things and maybe she can find ways to not have to do them. Yeah. Um, right, and she even, I mean, in this Tanya, in this episode, Tanya brings that up a couple times, too, like, oh, what? Yeah, then she wouldn't be your slave, right? Like, Right, where's the downside of this? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So that's the kind of Charlie Quill situation, which obviously we're going to get more of that next week when we sort of get the parallel quill story um this is sort of oh do we this is sort of quill light um and it is yeah. and i was wondering about that and, like if we would find out i guess i yeah. didn't realize it would be so is it, it, it so next week will be like right where the, where, where has what been, she's been doing right where's quill been you know and let's you know fill in the the backstory of what we missed out on um very similar to the kind of doctor companion light things where it's like hey we can film two episodes back to back because you know tenants over here and Catherine tate's over there and that means we can film things simultaneously yay saving money <laughs> so it's like not that there's anything wrong with that um so it's like, I think probably for the same sort of reasons, it's like, yeah, if we split up the cast, then we can kind of cover a bit more ground. So yeah, the next one is about the, the adventures of Quill. Interesting. Which then, because the next one is the penultimate episode. That's true. So then that sets up kind of the finale. The finale, yeah. The finale, I would suppose. Mm-hmm. Hmm. All right. Interesting. Good to know. Um, I mean, not that I wouldn't, like, find out in the next day or so. Anyway, but. Sure. Uh, all right. So, yeah. So let's talk about, like, the situation, though. So um, <clears throat> they get detention. They get locked in. And lo and behold, this random rift uh, action sends uh, part of an asteroid which becomes a meteorite because it entered Earth's atmosphere. Mm -hmm. as, we, um, as we find out. As, as we learn. If you didn't know that um, already. I did know that already. But, you know. So, this meteorite knocks them, knocks, like, the room, like, out of time and space. Um, kind of, I mean, I, you know, we always have to sort of just let the mechanics of how things work in Doctor Who slide a little. Um, hey, but they got meteorite, right? Sure. So there's your science for the episode. Um, yeah, but like, how does it like create this like perfect like room shaped uh, exception to time and space? I don't know. Um, to, like, where, like, 
it lines up perfectly with like where the door is so that when he sticks his hand through it like comes back or is it all just illusion are they like like in reality are they all just laying on the floor in the actual room and this is all like sure a mind palace well and they they speculate about that like they bring that up as a possibility of you know i think tanya says maybe this is one of those things where it's you think you're somewhere and it's all just in your mind so that certainly um seems to be a distinct possibility that i don't know that it ever fully gets ruled out um well i mean and and if the whole thing is like if the if the original asteroid was a sort of prison of psychological torture that's definitely consistent with that that you know you'd be sort of trapped in your own mind in some sort of inescapable scenario yeah i i suppose that could be i like so when it hits it is that sort of thing of like they're knocked out and then they wake up right it's like dorothy on the bed right Mm -hmm. like she gets knocked out and then wakes up in munchkin land Mm -hmm. right like did she really wake up or is it just a dream like you know whatever Mm -hmm. um but at the end, like, they don't have a similar ending situation like that. Sure. So that's the thing is, like, they're all, like, standing. And then, like, the room sort of, like, vortexes, I guess, back into, like, mm-hmm. uh, time and space. And they're all just sort of standing where they were standing. And the rock is there. And, like, it's not like they're, like, knocked out again and wake up again, like, in the real world or something. Yeah, and as you kind of alluded to, this is hardly the most far-fetched scenario in the Doctor Who sort of universe that we've seen. So I don't feel like we need to go looking for alternative explanations on the grounds that it's sort of not realistic enough. Um, No, that's fine. I just was sort of pointing out, like, the situation of it. Um, But I think, I mean, the, the point being, I think... You know, it seems to be that they are actually knocked out of space and time. But, like, I think you could also probably do the reading where it's, you know, part of the prison. Where it's psychological in some sense. Um, yep. Well, and there's cer- certainly a psychological component, even if it's not, like, all in their heads. It's mm-hmm. with, the you know, getting angry. And, and there's certainly a component to... Um, putting strain on their emotions, but also like compelling them to tell the truth, and and so there's psychological aspects to what mm-hmm. what happens to them. Um, yeah, which this seems to be like we can just talk through like the prisoner and the prison and stuff. Um, so this rock is either a prison or part of a prison because it it's like it's only a piece of like the asteroid right Mm -hmm. like it's like one small piece so is this like a huge like bigger prison from which this like smaller little bitty prison like broke away from like that's kind of what it seems and what i'm not clear on is they say something about um he killed his four fellow prisoners Mm -hmm. which is kind of significant that there's like five in each scenario like, i know so I was, it's like you're waiting for, that too. for charlie or somebody to just go 
completely postal on the other four. Um, well, oh, uh, sorry. I thought you were talking about also an angel with the numeros. The, the oh, the I didn't, wasn't even thinking about that. <laughs> the, the numero cinco. Sure. Um, I actually can say, because it's kind of like the opposite of that, right? Like the four brothers died, but they're like heroes. They died saving right. people. And there's one surviving brother rather than one sort of killer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No, I didn't even really think of that parallel, but that's good too. Um, um, sorry, go ahead. No, my only question was, so, like, if, if, I think it's clear that this piece of rock is a piece of the larger sort of prison asteroid, was it just the five of them that were occupying this asteroid? Or was it like, this little rock was the prison of those five, and then the asteroid held like, I don't know, dozens hundreds billions who knows like you know i don't know that we get the clarification between those two well if if a tiny cabinet can hold like millions of souls yeah um how many like because because you kind of get the sense that it's the same idea right like it's the not the soul maybe but the uh, you know psyche or the yeah mental state of the prisoners right like whatever and we've talked about that before right like i mean even when we're just in talking about the cabinet of souls we've talked about other episodes of doctor who where there's been like consciousnesses or memories or whatever term you want to give they're all kind of like variations on the same idea of like this some kind of soul or or individuality Mm -hmm. you know trapped or collected or however you want to term it inside of some kind of physical construct you know besides a body yeah (laughs) um so yeah like you could see this being like some kind of quasi magical rock in which dozens hundreds thousands millions are you know imprisoned um and i mean like we don't know enough to like like are all of them sort of this angry aspect or is there like are there different levels to it like are is there like a maximum and a minimum security mm-hmm. you know versions of this um are there different like if the murders were like crimes of passion and anger are like other parts of the rock or other you know, pieces that have broken off from the asteroid, like, are they different? Do they tap into, like, crime-appropriate prisons, like, depending on, Mm -hmm. you know, what, like, if if it's, I don't know, if it's, like, um, I don't know, somebody, somebody stole something, is there, like, a greed aspect to their, you know, punishment or something? Right. I don't, I don't no off the top of my head obviously like we don't get enough stuff there but you could almost imagine that like yeah like there's a punishment fitting the crime kind of sure idea to um different right like for a murderer you know uh uh you know a punishment that where you feel angry you know all the time you know there's a fittingness to that like a, a crime of wrath or something 
Um, so yeah, so I mean, they sort of figure out they're well, and and so the other aspect of it is this honesty, right? Like, there's like a truth serum aspect to it mm -hmm. of like confessing, like part of like part of the punishment is maybe like reliving. So I remember like, I don't remember if it was a video or a story or something of like, when I was in high school, they showed it to us in this, it might have been like social studies or I don't know, participation in government or something. Where like, like the whole like idea was like, I think a drunk driver like who hit a girl and like the punishment was like, every month or something like, on the same day of the month that like he killed the girl, he had to write like a one dollar check or something to like the. It was like one of these weird made up scenarios, obviously. But like the 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 point of it being like the upshot at the end being like he tried to like pay it off all at once, but it was like no. The whole point of like having to do it every month is that mm -hmm. it forces you to remember kind of thing. So is there like is there that aspect of it like like it's just forcing you to relive the crime of like what you did but then like i don't know as a punishment it seems like that backfires because like he goes he just commits four more murders right right like within the so like whoever thought up this prison i either didn't care enough or or wasn't smart enough to think through like those implications like how is that better in the long run especially if the ultimate thing is that it gets someone else to kill the murderer sure so does that mean like is that like almost like entrapment at that point like if like i mean we can talk about whether like to what extent charlie is responsible and complicit in any kind of genocide like he seems to think he is but like, does, like, forcing someone to, like, kill someone else, like, it's it's just a cycle that repeats. And, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure we could get into, like, metaphors of, like, recidivism rates and, you know, sure. how, like, there's a vicious cycle to the sort of prison industrial complex kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But, you know, without getting into all of that, like, there's... Um, there's just that question of like what what's the morality there of of creating a prison that forces someone outside the prison to kill but then by doing that like becomes the next prisoner like right is there is that justice or is that what is that if if not it doesn't it's seem kind like of sick justice and to me yeah like yeah. yeah it's like a weird yeah form of it yeah no, I, I agree. Anyway, so that's the sort of meteor, meteorite prison, well, asteroid slash meteorite prison and the prisoner itself, who apparently is, is, so apparently the whole time the prisoner is trying to get them so angry to kill him, right? Like, is that the... That's what I took away from it. 
is that it's actually trying either either the prisoner or the prison is trying to make the other so angry that they will kill right. the prisoner um now maybe they'll kill each other too i don't like there seems like a like like that's just the gravy on top if they kill each other in the meantime like mm-hmm. but that doesn't seem i don't think that that's necessarily the point sure or the primary point the primary point seems to be to kill the prisoner Sure. So that, because the prisoner is like, they're like, I'm done. I'm ready to die. Yeah. And I mean, it's kind of hard to tell. And it, it, I don't know. I, I struggle with even knowing, like, is there a point in the sense that, is there a real purpose to any of this? Or is it just that this is a you know, cruel and unusual punishment that, you know, whether it was designed this way or whether this is just the unfortunate effect of it was just sort of automated, like a system that was just automatedly set up and let go. And who knows who even set it up if this is what they intended, but it creates this scenario where the prisoners, it just forces them to become angrier and angrier and then they kill each other and then other people kill them and take their place and the whole thing just sort of perpetuates itself um you know and is it even being supervised by anybody like is there is this a scenario which is supposed to happen or just something that is happening of its own sort of accord I don't think it's very easy to tell um I agree. You know, and, and even with the prisoner, like, yes, does he want to die or does he want to kill or does he even know anymore what he wants? Like, again, I'm not entirely sure that we get a straight answer to that question. Sure. And that's fair. And there's like, like, you wouldn't expect the architects of the prison to have anticipated that a rift would randomly open in the path of this asteroid coming part of it into a classroom on earth right a classroom of school kids yeah right 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 it's just supposed to be i guess hurtling out into deep space where there's just nothing around is sort of the idea and maybe at some point we'll crash into a star and that would be the end of like everything like all the prisoners like that would be the ultimate punishment but you would have to assume, so I mean, I know I talked about like minimum and maximum security. I mean, you would have to assume in a, like a prison like that, it would be only the worst offenders, I would hope. Yeah, like, I, I kind don't... of see like, you know, maybe there are different levels of guilt or crime or whatever, but it seems like, I mean, does April say that at one point that like, to be kind of sentenced to a prison where your punishment is to be put on a piece of rock and hurtled into space, like, you know, whether or not all these prisoners are guilty of their crimes, probably their the crimes they've been charged with must be the most serious. Um, like, that doesn't seem like, you know, you went to jail for, you know, theft or possession of something or you know yeah 
All right. So, I mean, we've talked through a lot of stuff, um, but like we haven't actually talked through, I mean, we talked a little bit about Charlie, but we haven't really talked through the others yet. So um, we were just going to kind of go down as they sort of come up um, as, as they sort of like pick up the rock, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so Mateus is first. Um, yeah. And I mean, obviously, he doesn't know yet because, like, he was the first one to pick it up, so he doesn't know what's going to happen. Um, and of course, he's getting ready to hurdle it, hurl the asteroid out the door, mm-hmm. right? But we know what happens there because we see later when Charlie tries to, like, stick his hand through the door and it comes right back in. Right. Like, it would have just, like, I guess come back and probably hit him. Flung like back if he had in thrown the room, it, yeah. Throwing it through, like, yeah, like he would have been throwing it directly at himself, probably. Yeah. Um. But it doesn't, like, it ends up stopping him and he kind of gives this confession of of fear and love and, you know. Mm-hmm not like sort of even a little bit of doubt in Charlie. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I don't know that I have much to say there other than like, those all seem like reasonable mm-hmm. ears like that. He has like that, you know, Charlie looks human, but isn't human. And he's afraid of what he's capable of. And, all of that. Um, yeah. It, it's funny. So like, this is all, all of the things that he says and that all of them say are sort of presented as like being honest. Mm-hmm. But then like later, like Mateo says, you know, I couldn't stop. I wanted to, but it was being said, but it's only part of the truth. It's the smallest part, the angriest part. And so, I mean, on the one hand, it's like, it's that thing of where, yes, it's true, but it's it's only part of the truth. Like, those fears are there, but that doesn't mean that they always went out or that they're always right. the strongest emotions that he has. Right. Um, so is it, if it's not the whole truth, is it, it forces you to confess the part of the truth that you normally wouldn't tell anybody? You know, the part that you're in denial of or ashamed of or you know um because he's said truthful things before that he was perfectly happy to tell charlie you know how he in the positive ways how he feels about him and their relationship but um well i guess also yeah he's also done some criticizing of charlie for the cabinet stuff yeah so like it's not even like he only says good things or nice things or things he thinks Charlie wants to hear, mm-hmm. right? Like, he has criticized them, at least to some degree. Right. Um, before as well, so. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, and I think, I mean, we can go through and see if that's consistent, but I think that's maybe the theme is the truth that is not even, yeah, like not even like they can't criticize other people but the part of the truth that makes them ashamed of themselves. Um, You know, the thing that Mateus thinks that he doesn't want to think, 
or want to admit that he thinks. Um, mm -hmm. Which is not that Charlie makes mistakes and isn't above criticism, but the more, I guess, the the more painful things about what if you're in love with someone who's not human at all? Um, both in his, like, physicality, obviously. He says, like, you're, he kind of says, like, you're human everywhere. Like, obviously, they've been intimate and everything. But also, you know, on a, you know, the scarier level is your instincts are not human. You know, your your wishes and desires um, yeah. and the things that he really wants to be doing are seemingly inhuman. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, and so later, um, there's also the Narnia conversation. You want to take this or should I? The, the problem with Susan? Well, so here's, I have, I have two problems and they're related. Um, I mean, it's less than 99, so. Yeah. Um, so it's not like, you know, Mateus, who is, I, I'm going to critic and assume is speaking for the writer here. Um, like just as Mateus is critficking C.S. Lewis, I'm going to go ahead and critic Patrick Ness and say, this is probably his opinion, you know, um, what, what frustrates which me, he, which he stole from Neil Gaiman, which he stole from Neil Gaiman and like a lot of people like that's part of it. Right. It's like, you know, it, you say this like it's it hasn't been said a hundred times before by other people. And what I find frustrating about it um, is not that it surprises me to hear people say things like this, but um, the bit that comes afterwards about overhearing and that ruining your relationships isn't with Susan. It's with Lucy. Um, which further reinforces the sense that this is all based on sloppy misreading or people who haven't even really read the thing in a long time or didn't read it very carefully. Um, so I kind of feel like if you're going to criticize, at least like get your, get your passages right. Um, because it's, it's a completely different character. So anyway, Sure. Well, and this, so. And by the way, in case anybody who might be listening to this and hasn't heard me give this rant before, I don't even really disagree that there are aspects of the Susan thing that are not problematic. Like, I, I just think it's often a lot more complicated um, than people give it credit for. And I think this is a perfect example of you know, someone who's perfectly happy to kind of very shallowly put words in sort of the author's mouth and, you know, assume they know what he was meaning and thinking and criticizing about something and then show in the same breath that they misremembered the text that they read. Um, yeah. 
So it's sort of a little hard to take it seriously when it's like, okay, yep. you couldn't even be bothered to look up the the Dawn Treader, which is a completely different book. So we threw in the Susan thing. Why? It wasn't relevant to this conversation. Um, I totally get the right. relevance of the Dawn Treader bit. And I think that as a moral of this episode works really well to say this is about how overhearing things that aren't meant for you can affect your relationships. And even if there's truth in it, there might be truth, there might not. But just the sheer fact of hearing something that was an unguarded moment of honesty, if you're not careful, can completely wreck your relationship, even if the person saying it never meant you to hear it, never meant that to happen to your relationship. I think that's a really interesting parallel. Um, and it kind of bums me out that we had to shoehorn in the old problem of Susan, you know, yeah. lipstick and nylons into this sure. conversation where it's kind of really not relevant. Um, anyway. Yeah, and so I, I agree, I agree, I agree with the aspect of like, you're making this complaint that it that isn't really relevant to the substance of the story, and isn't uh, the like that clearly shows that you didn't read carefully, and it's like the double whammy that like there actually is a part that could have been relevant. If you had just taken 10 minutes to, like, actually look up where that occurs and which character. Because you probably wouldn't even need to actually go back and read the book, right? Like, I mean, internet, like, yeah. you could find out. Oh, like, it would, yeah, it would take you, you know, two minutes Luce, to find that Luce, chapter. and yeah. Lucy overhears a friend. Or, or Narnia overhears a friend, you know, something. And it would yeah. tell you who did it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, the other thing that I always that I always think when I think about that. And, like, I mean, I have an evangelical background, but I'm fairly agnostic at this point and don't like go to church and, you know, do any of that stuff. Like I, but I do feel like, I do feel like there's a certain, uh, type of person or, or group of people who, who like to find flaws in something just because they know it's sort of a Christian hmm text or based in like sort of Christian ideas when like if it were couched in any other terms would be totally fine. Mm -hmm. So like, like the way that I look at the problem of Susan is like, okay, yeah. Like he picked out like, Oh, she couldn't, you know, go to heaven, you know, because she was too into makeup and whatever. But I see that as it's not like, like, okay. Yes. Like there is like the Christian thing of like, like, I suppose you could look at that as, like, it's too shallow and, like, are we being, like, really puritanical here and whatever. Okay, like, you could read it that way. But there's also the the thing where you could read it, like, well, what about fairy stories where, like, someone who grows up and, like, doesn't have the childlike demeanor never finds fairyland again. Right. Right? Like, like Hook or right. something like that. Right. Like, like, if you take the Christian meaning out of it and mm -hmm. context out of it like i feel like they would be perfectly fine with a story like that where it's like oh they lost 
the childlike quality that allowed them to find fairyland in the first place. Yeah. And they couldn't get back. And I think, I believe that was Lewis's sort of intention oh. in it. I, I think the fatal flaw, which I don't think he intended or foresaw necessarily, was um, making it a gendered thing. Um, I, sure. I think if if he'd picked a different character, if it had been Eustace, um, it wouldn't have been lipstick. It would have been maybe an invitation to like a business dinner or something that he thought of sure. as really grown up, you know, or like access right. to some exclusive thing or club or, you know, whatever thing he would have, I think he would have chosen different sort of temptations. And I think he, he made the, the, kind of dumb move of you know and probably didn't necessarily understand young women in you know very well um to go for like the most cliched and you know I don't know kind of overtly shallow thing which kind of people seize on to mean that he thinks young women are shallow in general and are sort of damned to hell if they are into you know appearances at all um which i don't think was personally i don't think that was the intention of and i also think it was a a case of who else was he gonna pick right like i don't think i see mateus's thing about i'm thinking okay so based on one passage that happens in the last two pages of the entire series you're now backtracking to say he hated Susan throughout the entire story, um, which I think is a tough argument to make um, based sure. on the books. Like, I don't really see that. Um, it's I think it's more, it's not going to be Peter or Edmund or Lucy. It's, it, you know, she's kind of the only one left who's not become that essential distinguished person who he absolutely can't leave behind. Um, so anyway, that's my, so I, I think he, I think he kind of goofed, but I don't think it's the kind of raging misogyny that, um, Lewis. a lot of Lewis's yeah. that a lot of people seem to sort of ascribe it to. Um, and it's things like this. It's like, I would respect that argument more if it wasn't said, if it wasn't often accompanied by these sorts of, you know, misreadings and factual errors. Um, like if you gave me a sense that you'd actually like paid attention in the recent past, <laughs> maybe sure. I would have a little more time for your argument. Well, and it's, I mean, the added irony, right, is that they're complaining about this, you know, C.S. Lewis putting shallowness onto Susan when they're giving it shallow readings themselves. Exactly. Exactly. But. All right. So we've got five minutes left to talk about the other characters. Yes. We should probably move on. Distracted by Mateus Um, there. But we knew um, it was going to happen. Yeah. I mean, and... Oh, and I, mean, I, I completely of... forgot about that. And when I, when I watched that in the episode, it was like, oh, we have to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we can't let a good Narnia reference. 
Well, and it's funny because like, I mean, I know this, I know it's not Doctor Who, but it's the same universe. And we get, we got like a whole episode that was like basically going into Narnia and stuff. And so, Uh you know. Yeah. uh, Yeah. I mean. There's a great um, thread of, yeah, I've, I've plugged the TARDIS Eruditorum blog before and I'll do it again. Um, of uh, uh, of what Elle Sandifer terms the problem of Susan, of Susan, the doctor's granddaughter, who's the original companion. Mm. The, you know, the first, he kind of picks up these school teachers who goes with him, but she's the one who's sort of the original traveling companion. And um, with similar themes of the fact that she kind of, is it a young adolescent woman? And who the doctor kind of doesn't really know what to do with her. <laughs> and maybe neither do the writers. And she kind of is cast aside in her, you know, young womanhood, just sort of given away to go get married um, mm. and never seen again. And, you know, apart from like spinoff media, never re- even heard from again in the show. And it's it's an interesting parallel of, you know, the pro- these problems of Susan, like what do in the fifties and sixties, you know, when these kind of texts were being made, what are we to make of these young women and their budding maturity? And, you know, especially as handled by writers who don't necessarily have the most sensitivity for, you know, or experience with young women around that age. Um, so it's an interesting it's, a, it's an interesting thread, and I think there are interesting, like, parallels to be made, but, like, you have to actually, like, look closely at what you're critiquing, I guess, is my only note. Um, There's also so. a great little micro-fanfic called The Problem, or I don't know if it's called The Problem of Susan, but it, it's where the Susan is Susan. Like the doctor meets Susan and invites him to be his granddaughter. And that's sort of the origin of the doctor's Susan. So anyway. Sure. I'm done. All right. Um, Two minutes to talk through. Everybody else. Ram, Tanya, April. Yep. At least. I mean, we kind of talked about Charlie a bit. So mm-hmm. anyway, um, Ram gets really angry right away. Like he he's the first one where we notice signs of anger. Sure. Right. And we're not sure why. Like April is not sure why. And she's like saying that right from the start. Like, mm-hmm. why are you like this? Um I don't I mean it seems to affect them all at a different pace. So I think that's just it. That like for some reason Mm -hmm. he's, I don't, I don't want it. Like after that whole discussion about shallowness, I don't want to say it's because he's an athlete, but I can't discount that it's because he's an athlete. Sure. Um, I mean, like it could be also because of his feelings about his leg. Like that seems to be a touchy subject, right? Mm -hmm. Like, the feelings of loss and like he's feel that he's feeling normal, right? Like, which is not what he wants to feel. He wants to be a superstar again. He's sort of lost that. Um, and that comes up like in terms of April saying like some people 
actually want to feel normal. Like, oh, my mom, for instance, who can't walk. So that idea of like, he feels like he's lost something, whereas someone else in, you know, who receives, you know, artificial legs might be perfectly happy, you mm-hmm. know, to do so and um, would feel like it was a gain of something. So um, it's, I think it's interesting because they do that, pre- like the second time watching it through, obviously I knew what was happening. So I was more aware when he started right off getting angry because we don't ever, we don't really, it's pretty much Charlie gets put in there and then the meteorite strikes, right? Like there's no, there's no real time that passes where we see them all before that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I say that and then I'm thinking about it. I'm like, is that true? I don't know. Um, we'll go with it. Cause that no, <laughs> like you're not refuting me. So, uh, but just that idea of like, so right from the beginning, he's really angry. But the first time I watched it, I like, I was kind of like, yeah, why is he like, mm-hmm. like there doesn't, I don't, I didn't remember anything from like the previous episode that like should have made him right. this angry. Like, right. It's kind of subtle enough. Yeah. At first that you don't, and maybe that's why he gets angriest first is whether it has anything to do with being an athlete or not. His, maybe his emotions are the most volatile of the group. Like his, his, uh, he doesn't feel more of an outsider than, I mean, they all feel like outsiders, Um, but he's the, the only one in the past to not be, to not have kind of benefited from this situation in the sense that like, he probably took a hit in his social standing, you know, like, He's not going from misfit to part of a gang. He's like one of the popular kids who now is hanging out with these kind of weirdos. Um, So maybe it's like you don't notice quite at first when he's sort of angry because he's kind of the quickest to be critical or to be sort of not in love with the group or to be sort of angry about his, you know, the the hand that fate dealt him and all those sorts of things um it's not completely or, out of character the for him yeah for sure the, the foot that fate the foot um, um right it's not like it's it's not entirely out of character it's a little uncharacteristically mean but um but it's the one that at first you don't really question too much Um, whereas like with April, obviously, um, even though she's sort of at pains to every, to tell everyone that she's not as nice as she seems to be, she's generally pretty nice. Like, you know, she's not emotionally right on the surface. She's someone who's thinking about what she says before she says it and a little more sensitive and a little more careful. Um, so with real, real quickly with Ram and April, um, after the conversation we had in the last episode about the truth or not of their, um, 
were they going to confess their love for each other? Um, you know, and then they both kind of deny it. Um, we get, you know, follow up here and the inequality of their feelings. Not that, not unequal, like one feels more strongly, but like they don't articulate their feelings in the same way. Um, you know, like Ram says, he loves her more and she kind of says, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's sort of about it. Although she kind of clarifies later that that doesn't mean she doesn't have feelings. It's just that she's not ready to confess them in the way that Ram is. Like he's sort of all in, right? Like he loves her. She's the one. That's it. Um, no real need to kind of think further, whereas she's more in the place of uh, not being sure what she feels and having to sort of make sure that she's not going too far too quickly. Mm -hmm. And part of it is feeling like he's not even, even his own feelings might only be temporary. Like, not that they're not sincere, but that they might last the month and then, you know, he'll have moved on to something else. Right. Which, I mean, he sort of eggs that on a little bit right and i mean it, it's mm -hmm. coming from anger and hurt but like he basically says like i have other options right, right. like in kind of you're lucky to have someone as hot as me <laughs> right um which you know leads her to ask the very appropriate question of why are you being such a dick you know like mm -hmm. what's the what's the meaning behind that i mean and we learn why because there's angry but like you know, we talked about the the fact that like these truths maybe aren't um, complete truths, but like we should also not dismiss them as untrue, right? Like they're still truths, and so like like obviously we know that like he, part of the reason is his is his fear that she not even fear, but belief and seems accurate belief mm -hmm. that she doesn't love him, at least the way that he loves her and like, isn't, doesn't see her. She doesn't see him in the same way that he sees her mm -hmm. in this relationship. Um, and she seems to confirm that later too. Yeah. So like he seems pretty pretty spot on um anything else about april there because i actually didn't have much about her it was like she has her moment of talking about like how she testifies against her dad um and there's the curious comment of quills that april's in charge obviously mm -hmm. um i don't know that that's obvious but sure like i don't have i don't i also don't have an objection mm -hmm. i mean i could i guess i could sort of work through it of like 
Quill's not going to put Charlie in charge, right? Mm-hmm. Like, he's already sort of, like, Prince and would likely take charge on his own anyway if he could. Sure. But, like, and Mateus is sort of, like, the sidekick. So, like, right. he doesn't, he's not, like, the leader type. I'm not as clear why April would necessarily be in charge opposed to Tanya. Hmm. Um, Well, I guess, is it just an age thing of like, you know, is there like you're the 14 year old amongst the 17 year old. So you're, that's that that feeling of automatic junior status, you know? I I mean, in Quill's eyes, I can see that. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know that that's obvious you know, objectively. Sure. No, Um, but I think, like, taking it from Quill, that makes sense. And I think it it plays into the insecurity that, you know, I think if if that is a feeling of she is a slightly junior member, not because of she doesn't deserve to be in charge, but simply because of her age, um, I think that only reinforces her you know, the feelings that she confesses here. For sure. Um, and it doesn't matter to her. She kind of feels like it doesn't matter how smart she is um, yeah. or how mature or how correct she is about everything. She's always going to be the one sort of tagging along behind the yeah. others. Sure. I mean, the other part of it too is that, um, I mean... April was, you know, the Shadow King mm-hmm. for a while, right? So, like, I could see Quill seeing that, like, the sort of battle leader aspect. Sure. Uh, being the obvious reason for which uh, she would be the leader. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, just... I guess I... So, like I said, I could sort of back into it from Quill's perspective, but, like, I don't... I don't think objectively it's at all. Right. If you kind of do process of elimination, you can kind of get there. And I'm not sure that April ends up being the leader. Sure. I I mean, like, there's a sense in which they all have their moments. But generally speaking, I would say Tanya actually does end up being more of a leader in this episode. For sure. um, Rather than April. Yeah. And again, it's, it's not merely that she's the smartest, which that might be true, and she comes to the most correct conclusions, but it's more that that she's the first one to be saying, we have to figure this out, and pushing them to think and question it, and finding ways to pick up, you know, like, even just saying, all right, we have to figure out what the rock is, get it with the rulers, um, and then being the one to be sort of brave enough to take the first step and say, we need to know what the rock is, she'll grab it. Um, I think, yeah, like it's, it's pretty much her leadership throughout the episode. It's pretty clear. Um, what else? What else have we not said? Because um, like, you just kind of covered Tanya. <laughs> there pretty good like i don't know that i have anything else to say um anything else about charlie i mean i 
I don't know that I buy his sort of like guilt trip. Sure. I mean, um, com- completely. Like, I not that like I don't think he feels guilty. I don't know if I. I guess that's agree with the reasons why he feels guilty that he should feel. Guilty. I mean, I, I guess it's that that is that why they have the bit about with like Rodians. If you if you think of it, it's literally the same as like to kind of convince you that he's cre- he's committed some crime already, um, which makes me think of. Um, I don't know what the chapter and verse, but the kind of, if you've, you know, committed adultery in your heart, then you've done it in, you know, like there is, I don't know that any culture believes it to the literal extent that the Rodians seem to. It's a thought sin. But there is precedent for stuff like that of like, yeah, if you... I guess in in that culture, it's like thinking of it is the same as, or is it just the mere thought or is it like, has he dwelled on it? Is it like, is he fantasizing about it? Like what exactly makes it cross the line into actual sin or crime or whatever? Um, And in any case, he seems to have, at least for himself, cross that line. Um, and I guess, I mean, the only other thing I would add, too, is, like, the way that Charlie seems to not be angry through most of the episode. It's more he's the one that's scared, and he's sort of having panic attack. But his anger doesn't seem to be immediately amplified by the effect of the rock which makes me then kind of wonder does that make his anger at the end more genuine um like is he less affected by the rock which means that when he does really express his anger or is that supposed to mean that this is how he feels like all the time like it's not even the rock that's you know promoting those feelings that's all I had did you have anything else for the characters that we didn't get to no no I think I think we covered most of them pretty good I'm interested to see what Quill was up to and sort of where we'll pick up with next but Mm -hmm. um I guess given that she uh, comes back and saves, like, like lets them out, first of all, and then actively, like, saves him. Um, like, is this a spike after he gets his chip out situation? Mm-hmm. Like, like, the chip was, was the chip the equivalent of a soul? And, like, does having it out mean that, like, is there a reversion or is there a, I know I'm seeing Mango on the back of the chair <laughs> and I'm, I'm like trying not to like laugh as she's like shaking her head around and stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is there like a, like, what does that mean? Has, has there been some growth while this right. thing was in her head preventing her? Like she, uh, like presumably she's no longer compelled. So this is 
what she says the last favor but none of what she did before was a favor right so like i mean it could still be the last one if it's the only one like that's not to say that she's lying there but like just that implication of like but why even one Mm -hmm. like what's the point of even having one is it like like for old time's sake but you hated being enslaved to him so right you know what what's the point of that um and why not kill him Mm -hmm. Um, i mean i think i know the answer to that but we'll wait to talk about that sure i guess because i'm sure we'll get other hints yeah well and and her hair is quite a bit longer so you have to kind of be wondering how long has she been away? You know, I did not you know, notice that. 45. I noticed the scar on her eye, but I assume gotcha. that that has has to do with uh, her getting the thing out. And maybe it does. I mean, we'll find. Yeah, we'll find that out. But like, I think it's one of those time distortion things where we hear that it was. 45 minutes in the room. Right. Charlie says, you're gone for... So this is in real time. This episode takes place. Um, and But yes, Quill does come back with significantly longer hair. So, you know, how long she's been off, you know, doing her thing um, is, I guess, what we'll find out next time. Hmm. Yeah. Just another another Narnia another Narnia connection that hadn't occurred to me before, but you know. Oh, of the the different yeah, Yeah, but that's like a fairy tale thing. Like I don't that's not specific to Narnia. No, but I think Narnia is like a particularly famous. It didn't invent that for sure, but I think um, it has that in common with this episode, like a theme of the sure. Since they bring up Narnia elsewhere, it's a. It's one that you might think it's of. a it's a parallel. Um. So. All right. Yeah. Okay. Switching over to uh, numero cinco. To um. Hell. Huh. To Angel. Um. Angel. So. Rather than anger, uh, I want to start talking about. Angel does have anger, for sure. But, you know, what's highlighted in this episode is... Frustration, I would argue. (laughs) More than anger. Moodiness. Sure. Well, he has had anger in the past, let's say that. He's not not actively angry in in this moment. Um, Well, and I'm not even necessarily saying he's not angry at all. I would... But I think... I would say that yeah, there's it's more frustration is mm-hmm. sort of the key emotion, and then maybe there's others that kind of go off of that. Mm-hmm. Well, so the, what the emotion I want to start with and kind of focus on here is what they keep calling his disconnect, um, mm. and it you know is brought up like they even call it that word several times throughout the episode. They keep sort of bringing it up and passing it along. Um, And you don't kind of realize it till later. I don't quite want to talk about the prophecy yet, but it's picking up on this little thread 
from the previous episode, right? Um, was it the last one where there was a mention of um, the prophecy to Spike? Yeah. Um, yep. And, or the one before, maybe it was the no. one before, um, where Angel and Spike have a conversation about mm. their kind of envy of their respective fates and, you know, being part of this wonderful prophecy that Angel kind of says sounds great, but doesn't mean anything. Um, right. And so, yeah, the cat's sort of out of the bag that Angel doesn't believe in his own destiny. Um, so that's sort of the, the glumness that we sort of are exploring in this episode. Um, and there's an interesting um, parallel early on with Gunn, um, which in a way is kind of about Gunn, but he kind of ends up highlighting the way Angel feels. Um, Gunn says, when they're like signing demon contracts and everything with Angel's own blood, um, he says, as CEO and president of Wolfram & Hart, you just bankrupted a company that dumps raw demon waste into Santa Monica Bay, banished a clan of pyro warlocks into a hell dimension, and started a foster program for kids whose parents have been killed by vampires. Not bad for a day's pay. Um, and then Angel kind of like, yeah, whatever. Um, and then Gunn says, look, I know legal weasels and business deals aren't as heroic to you as rescuing young honeys from tumescent trolls, but I love what we do. It's the first time in my life I can't wait to get to work in the morning. You've always had your special powers. Now I have mine. So, you know, from Gunn's point of view, this is for sure, I think, the first time he's ever sort of been this vocally sort of enthusiastic and optimistic about mm -hmm. the future and his place in the world and the difference that he's making and the purpose of what they're doing. Um, and it's not that he hasn't ever been motivated in the past. He's been, you know, of a, a highly energetic slayer of bad guys. Um, but like, you know, as one of the orphans who's was orphaned by vampires and maybe could have used a foster program or a charity to kind of help him out. Um, I don't know. You more got the sense that it was like born out of the anger and the pain of what happened to him when he was young. Like he grew up fighting vampires because that was the life that he sort of knew. And, you know, crusading against them was sort of, one of the only options that was available to him and like yes he cared about it but mostly because it destroyed his life at a young age and sort of everything was sort of born out of that whereas like this is the first time you really see him in like a vocation um and it is it's still fighting evil but not with his fists it's you know in the courtroom and going through it in like he's still fighting evil but it's in a constructive 
sort of way of, you know, you're starting this foster program or, you know, you're closing corrupt companies, um, you know, or blocking them at like a higher level or something. Um, and, you know, there's that sense of if you have purpose in what you do, it kind of changes your entire relationship to your working environment. I don't know. Am I wrong? Have we... I don't think we ever saw quite this attitude from Gunn before when it was angel investigations. Mm -hmm. um, no, I think... I think one of Gunn's consistent uh, questions, not questions, but like concerns and frustrations was that he was only, he was only the muscle, right? Like, especially like in the last couple of seasons, like I think, yeah, not that he necessarily disliked being the muscle, like, I think even recently, like, he was like, oh, it's still good to get out and, like, punch mm -hmm. a demon every now and then, right? But, like, it's clear that that's not necessarily what he wanted to do or or was only capable of doing, I guess, is how I would put it. That, like, you know, he contains multitudes and that, like, there mm -hmm. are other things there. And I think, you know, going back to, like, his um, sort of insistence that, like, like, they didn't change his capacity at all. They didn't change, like, his abilities. They just sort of, like, accelerated his, you know... I mean, I like, I guess they accelerated his ability to, like, learn stuff. But it's not like that he was incapable of learning this stuff before or whatever. It's just catching, catching him up with mm -hmm. the lack of privilege that he had, you know, in his life. Like, had he maybe had more money and you know a different upbringing and whatever he could have gone to law school and learned all this stuff anyway but like he didn't have all that stuff and so now it was just sort of he was given an accelerated course by mm -hmm. Wolfram and Hart um or you know the tailor that he went to um so yeah I I don't necessarily disagree that he's kind of in a a very different place and like a lot happier than I mean certainly of like I mean I think we would have said Lauren until last week right mm -hmm. it like seemed to be like most in his element but I think Gunn kind of overtook him mm -hmm. at this point mm -hmm. um and not that I think Lauren is unhappy it's just he was like doing things to like overextend himself and so like maybe after a good night's sleep or several nights sleep you know, Lauren will be back at it. But um, yeah, in this case, I think with Gunn, it's definitely the the case that he's kind of, he's feeling his vibe and, and he's feeling good about what he's doing. And um, <clears throat> yeah, I think, you, you know, I, and I think there's like, there's that idea of like, I think in any job you want, to be able to know that like what you're doing has an impact and i think a lot of times in corporate jobs that's not true like at least not for like the peons and even i think at the executive level depending on 
you know what the role is and what like it can it can feel so hard you know fighting against sort of a behemoth Mm -hmm. and with angel like it's not that he's not doing things it's that he's so far removed from the things that are being done like Mm -hmm. he signs a paper and then yeah lots of people scramble around and do things and maybe lives are saved and demons punished and or banished or whatever and like all of that happens but like he doesn't get to see that sort of like direct result Mm. right it's just sort of like nameless things happening to nameless people sure so here's a question and maybe it's one of these it's both kind of answers but like that's kind of one potential culprit for the disconnect is the bureaucracy of the situation they're in now and that's something that's new to him and it's different and doesn't appeal to his sense of like the thrilling heroics and all that sort of thing um but um you know to keep bringing up the prophecy um the suggestion i i mean i guess from the fact that he tells spike he doesn't believe in the prophecy and then Wesley's kind of diagnosis, and this is later on, is that, you know, you've stopped believing in it. And the implication being you stopped believing in it like a while ago. Um, You know, like this didn't just happen because you started working for Wolf from the Heart overnight and then bam, suddenly you don't believe in the prophecy anymore. That this has been like a gradual, you know, chipping away at his sense of destiny and any sort of ultimate reward for himself. Um, So is it both, do you think? Like, is it the combination of his loss of purpose and his larger sort of destiny, as well as the unhelpful nature of being the CEO of this huge company um or like is it one over the other or i don't know to what extent do we sort of lump them into the same category or are there two different problems there if you see what i mean kind of i why and i think the other thing there is that Wesley doesn't remember certain things, right? Sure. So, like, we don't know how much, like, and apparently doesn't even remember translating the part about the father will kill the son. Because mm-hmm. that's, like, what son? Like, you know, what do you mean by that? Like, mm-hmm. what's the, and what what's the significance of that? His His whole question there of, like, what are you talking about is like, there's a lot of little things. So it's hard to say from Wesley's perspective where maybe he started noticing it. I think, I mean, definitely. I think angel, I think we can tie angels uh, disconnect and disillusionment to what happened with Connor. Mm Mm-hmm. And and what ended up with Connor there? I don't. I mean, 
Right. It would so, be hard to pinpoint a specific thing there, but I would say actually it is fairly closely aligned with them starting at Wolfram and Hart, but I think it's not just the bureaucracy stuff. It's the the fact that like there was very much a clear um tie to the stuff with Connor mm-hmm. that also plays into that disillusionment that Wesley is picking up on but doesn't know anything about. And that was kind of my my point or my question was even if it is fairly recent in time, it's not it's a it Angel's disconnect is bigger than Wolfram and Hart. You know? Yes. That, I think I would that's certainly agree with that. that's certainly a large part of it. But it's not the it's not like all right, he was you know, a true believer up until day one at Wolfram and Hart, and then now he's cynical and, you know, doesn't believe anything matters. Like, it seems that there are elements that go back further than that or are bigger than that. Um, And, yeah, I think that's good evidence for that case, that, like, we're referencing, you know, some of the parts of the prophecy that Wesley doesn't even remember to know whether, what are the significance of these parts. Um, although again, the weird editing of the end of Connor's story comes up because Angel kind of says, oh, the father will kill the son as evidence of like, aren't prophecies stupid? But like, wasn't part of the implication that he kind of did kill him like again that's the confusion of the end of the last season remains um because in the end i thought like wasn't part of the point that yeah the prophecy was fulfilled so that is is that more evidence that the prophecy is worth listening to and might actually be accurate sure and i mean I guess the question is whether Angel is starting to realize that or like, Hmm. or is there something else still to come? Hmm. Yeah, I don't, or like, hard to say. But yeah, I mean, I think there, I think you're right. Like, there's definitely an implication there of like losing your, I mean, how many times have you talked about memory is the person, right? Like, you are what you remember. Mm-hmm. And so if you don't remember anything, then that changes who you are. And like Connor in particular is a completely different person. I mean, the others are different people insofar as they don't remember Connor at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and Angel's the only one who sort of remembers it at all. Yeah. Um, although, I mean, like, didn't we get someone else referencing Connor after the fact? Or maybe it was, was it Lila, maybe? Like Ghost Lila or whatever? Lila or Eve, maybe? Or one maybe or the other. Eve, one yeah. or the other of them, yeah. Um. So, like, there are potentially other people who do still remember Connor. But, like, at least the, you know, core group of angel investigations. Mm-hmm. Don't accept that. Yeah. Um, yep. But yeah, I I would agree. Like there is a sense, 
like especially with i mean that's kind of angel's point right is like prophecies are untrustworthy because like they can be manipulated and interpreted different ways and like we don't necessarily know like they can make you think one thing and mean something completely different Mm -hmm. and like does he ever consider connor to be dead like probably not like Mm -hmm. but you're right there is a a certain kind of death in wiping his memory Mm -hmm. and and i mean and giving him completely new yeah He's not the same person at all. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that's sort of, I mean, we jumped around and got to some of the points I wanted to bring up later. So um, we've covered a little more ground, but that's basically like the setup is um, Angel's sort of moodiness. Um, and then into this, we get sort of the situation of the week Um with, you know, this series of murders that, um, you know, f- few people were found um, with their, like, you know, killed while they were still living, seemingly, um, with their hearts cut out. So there's some sort of heart-stealing serial killer going around. Um, and, uh, and then meanwhile, we also get the sort of strange intrusion of this character number five um who it kind of starts he's like the male guy at wolfram and hart um wears a wrestling mask as as you do and um randomly attacks angel and throws him through a window and angel tries to drop off mail to the cart um so just like, you know, another another assassination attempt, seemingly, at Wolf and Hart. Just like, you know, normal day's business. Um, yeah, and we don't really learn much about him right away because he's sort of escorted off the premises and um, that's all we find out at first. Um, so, I mean... We were kind of saying, like, there's a lot of, like, business with the investigation early on, which I don't know that we need to go through, um, like, every single step by step, but sort of cutting to the reveal here that uh, the demon is this Aztec demon who's sort of trying to become a god, it seems, Um, and is, you know, has the ability every 50 years to resurface and um, kill people, basically. He just kind of commits the same crime every 50 years um, Mm -hmm. on the day, on the Mexican Day of the Dead. Um, Yeah, so I don't know that I have a lot to say about the demon itself. Did you have anything to sort of no, I mean, you know, sort of the Mesoamerican Aztec thing. I mean, that goes hand in hand with the Mexican, mm-hmm. you know, wrestlers. I, you know, how did it end up in L.A.? You know, I don't know. Um, 
other than how to, you know. How does anybody from, end up in LA? Mid, yeah. yeah, how do people from middle and, you know, uh, South America end up in LA, I guess. I mean, the so, unless it's, well, actually, I think we can't answer that because um, Numero Cinco gets recruited by Holland Manor. Yeah. Uh, to Wolferman, to come to the LA branch of Wolferman Heart, and this demon is looking for the token, which we learned that Numero Cinco has. So, um, or not token, like, um, totem. Right? Talisman. Talisman. Thank you. Um, I knew it started with the T. And <laughs> it was kind of along those lines of a thing. Um, yeah, it has the tal. He has the talisman. So, presumably, it can sense it somehow, but like not directly. Like mm-hmm. it's still, it can like maybe it's like GPS. That's like not very good. So it can like get within like you know. 50 meters or something of like where you are but can't like precisely pinpoint mm-hmm. your location um it's not like military military grade gps so you just sort of has like general like it'll yeah. get you in the vicinity and you have to kind of do the last he just has like waves kilometer on your own or whatever yeah um, um yeah yeah that that's sort of my take i think it's just that like yeah he's like it's this I mean, it's just sort of a random demon, and, like, it was in Mexico, and they killed it in Mexico, presumably, and, and like, now that the token is migrating, right, he sort of, sort of like, it. scented it out and can figure out where it is. And yeah. You know, killing people for sustenance and looking at the same time for this talisman. Yeah. Right. Right, so... Yeah, number five. Um, it's number it's, five. It's stayed alive. Funny, um, kind of how long it takes to kind of get to his sort of what is it, his deal exactly sure. in his backstory because you know obviously the 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 name kind of clues you into the fact that like okay number five numero cinco is going to be something important and it starts with like you know him pushing the mail cart so you're like oh is this gonna be like i thought maybe this would be like the zeppo or something or like we follow a completely random wolfram and hart sort of peon and maybe you don't even see the other characters maybe they're all like running around in the background but yeah know. or just very briefly right? yeah um and that's not quite um I, I still think that would kind of be a fun idea but um it doesn't go that far with it um but you still get a little sense of like, all right, there are a lot of weird, random people who work at Wolfram and Hart for one reason or another. Um, right. and, and like, not necessarily all evil. No, yeah. no, just like, this is just the quirky guy who <clears throat> works in the mailroom and doesn't even really seem to like necessarily talk to a lot of people, but they all have this affection for him. Like they, you know, Fred is offended when she thinks that Angel attacked number five. Like, why would you do that? Um, so yeah. And so it's really not until like 
maybe like halfway through the episode or something that we even get to his apartment and he sits down with Angel to kind of give his whole backstory. Um, and the whole thing's kind of funny, like, you know, Angel has to break in every so often to say like, all right, so you just always wear the masks. Um, he's kind of got like a Cheech and Chong sort of like <laughs> very kind of like movie Mexican accent and everything. Um, and yeah, so they were, uh, I forget the Spanish, the number brothers. Um, I don't know if I wrote down. Los hermanos numeros. So no, hermanos numeros. Um, so yeah, and they were these sort of superheroes um, in Mexico that sort of were star team wrestlers by day and vigilantes by night and kind of seems like they fought, they say like they fought um, not just demons, but like crime lords and, you know, drug sure. runners and, you know, all the, all sorts of nasties yeah. throughout I'll, Mexico. Although you get the sense, at least from Angel, that like they're often the same thing, like that sure. those, like the cartel, like probably is run by like demons, right? Like, right, right. Right, or has some, you know, contacts in, you know, this sort of dark, you know, occult underbelly of, you know, these cities and everything. Um, and, yeah, he, you know, his brothers were killed in battle by this Aztec demon. Number five was the only survivor. Um, number five implying that he's the last, the youngest maybe, which like, there's another like Tanya parallel there of like the one that actually is potentially like the, you know, kind of the leader or the most sort of capable is the, the smallest, you know? Um, and yeah, sure. so he sort of like Angel, sort of, here's the parallels, lost his direction and his hope and his purpose. And that's when Wolfman Hart comes a-knocking. Um, you know, Holland Mathers, uh, Manners shows up with a business card, which now makes me wonder, is Wolfman Hart's offer to Angel significant? based on Angel's state of mind. Like, is it the kind of thing of, mm. like number five, at your low point, when you're feeling sort of hopeless, is that when Wolfram and Hart sort of presents itself as, a, as an option? Potentially. I don't know. Um, so then the other parallel being that uh, they get attacked by you know, or, well at separate times but they both get attacked by the Aztec demon and um, it doesn't want their hearts um, because his gun said they're dried up and gnarly and 
undesirable, um, potentially both literally and metaphorically. Um, sure. So, yeah, like a, a demon that preys on the purity um, and, you know, well, he preys on heroes specifically. Um, but then also within that, he preys on heroes who have faith in their cause um, and kind of believe in the purpose of what they're doing. Um, looking at, my, at our outline, we kind of talked about the prophecy, but specifically maybe we should talk about Spike's relationship to the prophecy, which I think is a slightly different thing. Um, because as Angel's losing faith in it, mm -hmm. Spike is kind of like, just hearing about this prophecy for the first time and thinking, well, that sounds kind of interesting. Um, and notices that the vampire is not specified. Um, sure. Um, and he's specifically, you know, well, a, which, you a know, vampire with a soul, which Spike now has, um, right. who, who might get to live again, which in some ways makes him even better candidate than Angel because he's a ghost as well as undead. Um, yeah, is is a ghost vampire more undead than a regular vampire? I would think he has to be. Like, is you're, there, is you're there even, a level? It's not like a, it's not a binary thing. There's like, you can actually have right. degrees like he's of undeadness. Even further from life than Angel is. Um, so yeah, Spike is definitely curious about this and, you know, yeah. kind of plying Wesley for some information, um, which is, that's a cool twist. It never occurred to me until this episode that it could apply to Spike. Um, but actually, like, I, whether or not we ever find out for sure um it's an it's a cool idea that you know this prophecy we've had all along in the show that you sort of just assume can only refer to one character to suddenly kind of realize like oh actually there are you know potentially other candidates for this it's kind of interesting yeah i mean right at least one other and of yeah. course it's of course it's spike. Yeah. Like Yeah. Yeah, of course it's it's, it's yeah. If anybody's going to steal <clears throat> not only does Angel not believe in his sort of heroic prophetic destiny, but if anybody's going to steal it, it's going to be Spike. Um Okay, so we kind of talked about the prophecy already. So it's kind of just the final confrontation then. Um, you know, number five pretends to eat the talisman. Um, he doesn't really. He sticks it in a coffee can, but it's close right. enough um, to lure the, you know, demon to the cemetery. Um, and there's, you know, 
some battle between, you know, with number five and angels sort of saving each other at various points. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the, the brothers, the hermanos come back and, uh, you know. Yeah, but after, after number five gets stabbed. Yes. So, like, he gets stabbed and, like, there's, like, the blood on the tombstone. Right, right. Like, I mean, there seems to be an implication there that that's what. Sure. Brings them back. Um, I can't be 100% sure. Yeah, no, I think you're probably right. And, yeah, and it's, you know, maybe that's not the only, like, maybe it was, you know, to do a battle and defeat this demon, but um, but also to carry their brother back with them. Um, like, and maybe the, the demon was sort of a separate issue. Maybe it was the simple fact of, you know, their brother is dying and mm -hmm. they're returning to carry him with them to the afterlife. So yeah, um, I don't know that I have a lot else about. Yeah, I, as far as like the plot elements, it's like okay, there and like they have the talisman now, so they can like prevent the demon from coming back. Right, and right, Angel gives it to Wesley, right? So it's sort mm -hmm. of in the Wolfman Heart sort of archive somewhere. Yeah, and sort of the implication is that whatever hex or spell that continued bringing the demon back every fifty years is now mm -hmm. they can they presumably break it mm -hmm. um but yeah 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 and it and it ends with angel sort of not chipper <laughs> he's still pretty disconnected and glum sort of at the end um but rereading the prophecy at least kind of indicating a renewed interest in what it says. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And, you know, all right, it's been a while since we've cracked open this old book. Maybe take another look at it and see if yeah. there's any new spins or, or a new sort of insight he can get from it. Yep. Yeah, those magic uh, library books are pretty handy. They're pretty cool. To show you whatever you want in translation. Like, it's nice. Good. Well, then yep. a lot of people would be out of jobs if they had that technology. I mean, Wesley still has a staff, right? Sure. So. Sure, and I guess how do you know that the translation's accurate? You probably want to, you know. Sure. Do well, some, yeah, I do don't. Some I mean, comparison and. Right, because you're thinking about like how much trouble Wesley had translating, just even like that one phrase, right? Mm -hmm. um, right. There's never one translation for anything. Right. Um, right. So, there's yeah. potential for all that, but I mean, presumably, whatever English translation Wolfram and Hart has is uh, now available, and or who knows, maybe maybe the English translation is. Maybe Wesley entered that in. Maybe it's his translation that he put in there. But I don't know that he remembers making a translation. Because mm -hmm. again, it's the father will kill the son, right? Like, right, right. 
yeah and yeah i don't i don't really have much more for this one i mean i feel like i mean it's kind of a fun one with the mexican wrestling and stuff the um so jeffrey bell uh wrote and directed it Mm -hmm. he uh so he he goes back to like he i don't know if he started with x-files or or before that but he was a writer uh on the x-files for a while and he uh had apparently always wanted to do a Mexican wrestling theme mm-hmm. episode. So this kind of gave him that outlet that he had been wanting to do for a number of years at this point. Um, Cause yeah, I think at this point, even X-Files is, is done and over with. Um, and he's been with Angel for at least a couple years at this point. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. Just kind of, kind of funny. Um, there but i think you're right like it does take a while to even get to um i actually had forgotten the sort of pacing here because i the the flashbacks of like the brothers are so vivid that i actually remembered it taking up more of the episode but it doesn't really it's like only a few minutes yeah yeah um so yeah and I've, i mean it, it is a quirky little episode i think if if they had wanted to push it, they probably could have made it a very strange episode. Um, sure. But I think, yeah, like the the bits of that it does have with the brothers and everything are, you know, are pretty pretty out of the ordinary. So. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Otherwise, I mean, yeah, we'll uh, we'll be back with a more, um, I think, more sort of regular episode next week. Um, yeah, more. Uh, so we'll explore some of Wesley's um, daddy issues. Uh, gotcha. So. Yeah. Anyway. Cool. Uh, that and Quill's uh, sort of what she was off doing in the meantime. Uh, so yeah, while the while the kids were in detention, so we'll we'll get we'll get that and we'll uh, talk about it next week. Sounds good. See you then. Mm-hmm.